So the reading this evening is from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and you can find this on page 928 of the Church Pew Bibles, or on page 1492 of the large print Bibles, which is what I'm reading from. So that's Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and this is about Jonah's anger at the Lord's compassion after God has forgiven the Ninevites. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm who chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we start. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here. And Holy Spirit, please come now as teacher and uh, speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Good evening. So it's Mother's Day. It's great seeing those daffodils handed out. Mother's Day, a day to celebrate mums. Aren't mothers amazing? They have the ability to solve the impossible and to wind their children up at the same time. My mum could do that on a daily basis, and I think this week I've definitely achieved that as well. And of course, today isn't just about biological mothers, but about all women who encourage us in our lives. I have an amazing godmother who I couldn't do without, and she uh, has already received a bunch of flowers from me. In fact, I even managed to find a happy godmother's card for her, which I was very impressed by in 40 years. It's the first time I've actually found one which was specifically for a godmother. Today is a great opportunity to thank God 
for those women and where we can to thank them. I'm sure at some point we have all given flowers to someone on Mother's Day. And maybe even at some point, like Mike, you made a cup of tea for someone on Mother's Day, maybe more successfully than Mike did. Or maybe you've received one as well. As a child, I used to wake up very early and I would creep downstairs and when I thought it was appropriate, late enough, I'd make mum a cup of tea and I would take it upstairs. And I do have to say, it took a few years for that cup of tea to be drinkable. But mum and I have always been close. In fact, I've always spoken to my mum two or three times a day. And she's always been central to my life and particularly to my tennis career. I used to play a lot of tennis. And there's a little picture going to come up of um, how important she was to my tennis career, as clearly she was the swing ball expert that got me going. <laughs> she used to spend... It can go down now. <laughs> she used to spend many hours ferrying me around the country to different tennis tournaments or training events. Uh, we just hit one problem, which was if she was watching me play a match and she was chatting to somebody and she was quite close to the court, if I hit a bad shot, I'd hear this, ooh, or ooh, come out of her mouth. And so we had to kind of make some kind of deal because if she wasn't talking, it was fine. Her mouth was closed and no noise came out. It was only when she was actually chatting to somebody else at the same time that I'd hear her displeasure. So we decided either if she was going to watch a match and she was going to be close, she had to be quiet and not talk to anyone, or she could go further away and talk to her friends. Didn't always work, but, you know, we tried. So this evening, we are continuing our series on counterfeit gods, as Mike said earlier. And we've looked so far in this series at a number of the personal idols that we might have in our lives. We've heard about how Abraham idolised his son Isaac. We've heard about Jacob's complex love life, how he idolised Rachel, but sort of got stuck with her sister Leah. We've heard about Naaman's desire and passion for success, and Andy last week talked to us about the different types of power that people can choose in the world. And I don't know about you, but that to me seems like a pretty big list of idols. And really, aren't we done? Haven't we covered them all now? Well, no. <laughs> Tim Keller has two more chapters. And tonight, we are looking at the hidden idols in our lives. And when I first read this and realized that that's what I was going to be talking on, I thought maybe I'd been given the short straw. How can we talk about hidden idols when we can't even see them and we don't even know they're there? But the more I've looked at what these hidden idols are and what God might want to talk to us about this evening, I've realized just how important it is to recognize what they are and how exciting it is to see God's response. So we are going to look at the story of Jonah this evening. We are going to look at how his behavior identifies his hidden idols, and how God responds. So Jonah does two things in the story. He first chooses to run away from what God plans for him to do. And the second thing he does is he chooses to get really grumpy with God. 
And then we also are going to see something of God's response to Jonah. We're going to see how God chooses to relentlessly pursue Jonah. And secondly, we're going to see how God chooses to teach him. And so what do we know about the story of Jonah? Well, of course, first there is Jonah. I don't know what you know about Jonah, but he's actually mentioned a few times in the Bible. He is a respected man of God. If you want to read more about him, look at 2 Kings 14 verse 25. But he is a person who God has spoken through to the people of Israel. And the people of Israel have seen great blessing through what he said. He's a really godly man. He's a good man, a chosen man. And the other main character in this story is not the big fish, which is what probably most of us think. It's actually the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was huge. It would have taken three days to walk across Nineveh. It was a big place. And actually, it's second only to Babylon in its power and its significance. In its near future, it will become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. But it also has another claim to fame. It is infamous for its brutality and its cruelty. The Ninevites had become powerful by being brutal. And actually, if we compared them now to what we see Daesh doing, ISIS doing, ISIS would appear soft because it was so brutal what they did then. Unspeakable, we wouldn't even be able to talk about it. And so God has decided to bring his judgment on this city. And so he decides he's going to send one of his men, he's going to send Jonah to the city to tell them that God's about to bring his judgment on the city and do they want to do anything about it? So that they have an opportunity if they want to, to change. And this is where we see the first of Jonah's hidden idols. Jonah hates the Ninevites. He really hates the Ninevites. He hates their cruelty, their brutality, and he knows that they are in opposition to Israel. And so he really, really doesn't want them to succeed. And as the story unfolds, we will see how his behavior reveals these idols and how God responds. So what happens to Jonah? Well, first, Jonah runs away from God's plan for him. Jonah simply does not want to go to the city of Nineveh. He does not want to go and warn them. So he actually heads off in the opposite direction. And verse two of our reading tells us why he did this. And it says, I know you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. When God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, it's easy to think that Jonah didn't go because he was afraid. And he would have every right to be afraid because as he walked into that city, he probably could expect to be killed. But he doesn't go to Nineveh because he has a suspicion of what might happen. He knows that if he goes there and he tells them the truth, And if they just by chance listen, he knows what God is like and that God might just forgive them. And Jonah doesn't want this to happen because they just don't deserve it. 
and he idolizes his hate of the Ninevites more than he's willing to do what God is asking to do, him to do. And so instead of going northwest to Nineveh, he heads off in the opposite direction to Tarshish. And that leads us to our first question for us this evening. Where do we choose to run away from what God is asking us to do? And then why? What is it that motivates us to not do what God asks us to do? And I'm not just talking about the big things, the going to Nineveh. It's often in the small day-to-day things where we have, God has plans for us and we often choose to not do those plans And I wonder when you next meet in your life groups and you're looking at this passage, that would be a good place to start and looking at why do we choose to do not what God asks us to do? Why do we choose to run away from the plans he has for us? And so we've seen Jonah's first behaviour. Jonah chooses to run away from God's plan for him. And let's look at God's first response. The Lord pursues Jonah. Even though Jonah is pushing him away, God chases after him. First, he sends a storm, which causes the sailors of the boat that Jonah is in to throw Jonah overboard because they blame him for the storm, which is right. Then he sends a fish, and yes, it's a big fish. And as we know, that big fish swallows Jonah and he takes him to the bottom of the sea where Jonah gets a chance to stop and to think. But God's pursuit of Jonah doesn't stop. It doesn't stop through the storm and it doesn't stop while he's in the fish. I am very aware of this in my own life, how God pursues us even when I've tried to run away from the plans that he has for me. I know many children are really keen to please their parents and as I said at the beginning, my mum and I were really close But at some point, I allowed wanting to please her to be more important than anything else. I would measure everything up against mum. She was my plumb line, and my life would ebb and flow according to how my relationship was with her. Uh, At the age of 20, I became a Christian, and suddenly this sort of brought some tension, because how can I please God and please mum? Now, most of the time, of course, those two things fall in line because, of course, they both want the best for you, but sometimes they didn't. And that brought tension and confusion. And more often than not, I would choose what I thought would please mum and just sort of hope that God would fall in line behind. So I just want to be clear, I didn't ask mum. Mum didn't ask for this. This is something that sort of I built up. And God could see it for what it was. He could see that as I chose to run to trying to please her over trying to please him. But he kept pursuing me. And a few years after I'd become a Christian, I, it kind of all felt like it was hitting a bit of a head. Mum and I seemed to clash quite a lot. And actually, I was seemed to be clashing quite a lot with God as well. And so I wanted to run away. And so I tried to do this. At the time, I was at Oxford University and I had the summer, the long summer break, and I decided I was going to go and coach on a tennis camp in Portugal so I could just get away from everything. I'd coached for this company before, 
didn't think it would be a problem. So I put my application in, and immediately I received a phone call from the man who runs these tennis camps. And he said, actually, Toria, I don't want you to coach for me this summer. Oh, okay. Suddenly wondering what I'd done wrong. I'd actually like you to manage one of my camps. Oh, okay, yeah, great, I'd love to do that. But this camp is in Oxford, not in Portugal. And he didn't really give me any choice in the matter. It was, you know, go to Oxford and manage that camp or nothing else. <laughs> so my plan to run away to go to Portugal didn't work because I was brought back to Oxford, which is where my spiritual home was. It was where my home church was. And I sort of had a summer where I was still disgruntled with God. I still tried to ignore him and rebel a little bit. But actually, every Sunday, I would be back in church. And in fact, I was finding that each Sunday, I'd have to do the kids' actions at the front of church. And through those songs, he would often be nudging me and just reminding me of who he was. So when we run away, God chases after us. God is relentless as he pursues us. He doesn't give up because he wants the best for us. Look at how he chases after Jonah, even though Jonah is pushing him away. Look at how he chases after the Ninevites, even though they are doing things that God hates. He sends them a prophet so that they can turn to him. And look at how he pursues us. By the time we get to Christ, we can see just how relentless God is. He's prepared to have his own son crucified in our place so that we might know love and forgiveness. So the next question for us this evening is this. Where is God coming after you in your life? Where are you running and where is he pursuing you? We often chase after other things where we should be looking to them from God. So where are you looking to other things? Because he will just keep chasing you. So we've heard how Jonah ran away from God's plan for him. We've heard how God relentlessly pursues him. What happens next? Well, while God is pursuing Jonah, he puts him in this fish at the bottom of the sea. And Jonah sits in the fish and appears to have a change of heart. We can read in Jonah chapter 2, he um, acknowledges that God is right. And he chooses to submit himself to God's way. And so suddenly he finds himself spewed up on a beach just outside Nineveh. So he makes his way into the city and he starts to preach. And just as he feared, the people turn to God and they receive grace and mercy instead of wrath and judgment. And even though Jonah appeared to have this change of heart in the belly of that fish, that's all gone. Because look at his response now. In verse one of our reading, it said, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now what's just been described before our reading is one of the greatest revivals you can imagine. One man walks into this vast city and he starts to preach. And they listen to him. 
And in fact, they all listened to him, not just the people on the streets, but the king himself. And so then they want to repent and they want to show their repentance. So they all put sackcloth on to show that they're repenting. And they're so keen to repent that they put sackcloth on all of their cattle as well. They want God to know that everything and everyone is repenting so that he can show them mercy. This is one of the greatest revivals you can imagine. And what's Jonah's response? He became angry. Why did that happen? Well, some people would say that you could um, compare it to somebody walking into the headquarters of ISIS of Daesh and speaking God's word and everybody repenting. And that would just seem bizarre. For me, some years ago, I went to Dartmoor Prison for three days. I wasn't an inmate, but I was involved in some filming of how the Alpha Course had impacted <coughs> sorry, the prison and some of the prisoners. Dartmoor Prison is an unusual place. It has a funny weather system around it. don't know if you've ever been there or been near it, but it sits on this sort of hill and has this weather system where there can be blue sky around Dartmoor Prison, but there is always a black cloud hanging over the prison. Well, I was there with a production company and we interviewed quite a number of prisoners while we were there. And one of the girls on the production team got crosser and crosser and crosser over our time there. She was furious that these men that we were interviewing could tell us about their horrendous pasts but they could also sit there and tell us about the glorious forgiveness they had from God and the amazing freedom that they knew as a result of knowing God. And this is similar to what Jonah is struggling with. He's thinking, they can't just get away with it by turning to God. That's not on. He feels angry. And whatever he'd agreed to in the belly of that fish has now long gone. He wants Jonah to be, sorry, he wants God to be just like him. He wants God to be a God who will make the people of Nineveh suffer for their crimes. In fact, he actually manages to make a counterfeit God out of God himself because he takes the wrath and the judgment of God's personality but ignores the love and the mercy and the forgiveness. He wants God to fit into his idea of how the Ninevites should be treated. But just like when he ran away from God, God can see Jonah's distorted view of the Ninevites and in fact, Jonah's distorted view of God himself for what it is. And so God chooses to teach Jonah. And he used, uses two great classroom aids. He uses a plant and a worm. I'd love to see that happening in a classroom today. So let's just imagine Jonah at this point. He's sitting on the edge of the city of Nineveh. Imagine him sitting on the floor. He's got his knees tucked in. He's got his chin sitting on his knees. He's cussing and cursing because that city should be burning. And it's not. They're all wearing sackcloth repenting and singing to God. That was not what he intended to see happen. And so God sends him a plant. And this plant grows up and it provides him shelter. 
And so the plant's there, and Jonah's beginning to feel a bit better. He's a bit cooler. Maybe all he needed was some shade. And he starts to feel a bit better about himself and actually about the whole situation. Maybe it's not so bad. Then God sends a worm, and the worm eats the plant. Then God sends the scorching wind and the blazing sun, and Jonah is back to where he started. He wishes he was dead. He's right back into the center of depression. And he's thinking, I didn't get what I wanted with the city, and now you've taken my plant as well. And so then God says to Jonah, Jonah, if you can become so attached to a plant in one day, how much more attached am I to the people of Nineveh? If you can have that much love for a plant, how much more love can I have for the people of Nineveh? And he explains to Jonah that there are 120,000 in that city who don't know their left from their right. That's probably referring to little children before they know their left from their right. And so he's saying to, them, to him, that city is full of families. And so my story with my mum also continued. During that same summer, I was on holiday in Greece and we were on a bay and I took a canoe and I paddled out to the middle of this bay and I paddled very hard and very fast and when I got to the centre of the bay, I shouted very loudly at God. I was really cross with him. I, I couldn't really express why, except I felt like he was taking things away from me. I'd split up with my boyfriend. My two best friends had suddenly both decided to get married to other people. Um, LAUGHTER uh, I'd had to stop rowing at college and I had to stop leading the church youth groups, all things that I love doing. And I felt really hurt by God. And ultimately, underneath that, I think he was challenging my desire to please mum over him. And so, I, like Jonah, I got grumpy. And yet, by the end of that summer, I realised that God had taught me something something very new and very, very precious. I'd known God as a big, mighty, awesome, incredible God. But he began to teach me about the relationship he wanted to have with me, which was a close, intimate relationship. And he taught me about the word Abba, which means daddy, that he wanted to be my Abba. He wanted to be very, very close. I won't suggest that from that moment I got it all right. I certainly didn't. I still measured lots of things up against mum. But I allowed, allowed God to come into the situation, which meant things could change. And actually, it meant that it was better for me and for mum and for our relationship. So God is willing to teach us what we need to learn. And for Jonah, he uses this plant, which Jonah manages to fall in love with, and which is then eaten. And I wonder if there are plants in our lives, things that, be, that become more precious than they should. They're often small things that we allow to grow disproportionately in our heads. And God can use these things to teach us more about him and more about the relationship he wants to have with us. So we've heard how Jonah ran away from God's plans for him, but God pursued him. We've heard how Jonah got grumpy with God, but God chose to teach him.
And so does Jonah learn his lesson? Well, you know, we're not told. The story ends there. That's the end of the book. He could have sat there and continued to wallow in his pain. Or he could have said, you know what, God? You're right. You are a God of love. I need to choose to not let other things obscure you, and I need to choose to follow you. I would like to think that that's exactly what he did do, enough that he was then able to share his story with others. And did I learn my lesson? Well, like Jonah, the story ended. Six years ago, my mum died, and that plumb line was gone. But I had precious times with her before she died. I was with her when she died, and I have precious memories of her. And so, like Jonah, I can live to tell the tale. Having heard this story of Jonah, I wonder why it's there. Why is this extraordinary story in the Bible? How did it make it? And I wonder if there's more to it than just being a great Sunday school read or a great pop-up book. The story has a purpose. And it's to encourage us to have our own stories. It's to challenge us to be able to tell other people of how God has pursued us and of how God has taught us. And how do we take these steps in finding out, discovering our own stories? Well, first, it's through those questions which I've been mentioning as I've talked. Where do you feel like you are running away from, what, from God's plans for you? And can you think why you are running in the opposite direction? Where is God nudging you? And what do you feel you might need to do about it? Because like Jonah, he won't stop nudging you. He will keep going. And where do you find yourself getting grumpy or having a disproportionate emotional response to something? You know, even as I've prepared for today, I've been really challenged on this one. And every time I've got grumpy over small things, I've had to sort of step back and go, why am I doing that? And often it's been because I feared something other than loving God. And once we've asked those questions, what do we do next? Well, next we pray. And we ask God what to do. Particularly on those small things, on those plants. He can step in and show us what to do, how to solve it. But also we need to acknowledge that we do sometimes find ourselves in situations, particularly around relationships, where there isn't a quick fix where a simple choice doesn't just solve everything. And in these places, it's important to remember that we are loved and that we are precious and that our Abba Father, our close, loving God, will relentlessly pursue us and relentlessly love us through it. Amen.